I pray, Lord, as we continue in this word, you would, in fact, bring it to life. Help us to appropriate it in our lives. Help us to apply it even. God, do a work. Move on your church. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Pray that with me. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Several years ago, I went to Kenya as a part of my doctoral program at Asbury Seminary, and we were there to experience church in different culture on the other side of the world, and one part of our experience was spent with the Maasai tribe in a small village a hundred miles south of Nairobi. Pastor Josiah was our host, was on his land that our group of 20 camped out there in the African savannah, and it was a beautiful experience. Josiah is married to Sarah. They have five children together. He is the pastor of an Anglican church there. He is a missionary with an organization called Pioneers and shepherd to who knows how many sheep, cattle, and goats. He went to study abroad in England. He was going to work on his business degree so that he could make money and help his, his community that he left. But while he was away, he experienced the gospel slam into his soul. He went to seminary and he returned home to his tribe, which is uncommon for those who leave and break out of that humble village. But Pastor Josiah was the first one from his tribe and from his family to put his trust in Christ. And his heart was heavy and burdened for his people, his tribe, to come to know and love Jesus. His first convert was his wife, then his mother, then his father. And over the course of time, it went on like that. He is personally and spiritually responsible for over 120 people in that village coming to know and love Jesus as Lord and Savior. One of the ways that the Messiah people honor their guests is by slaughtering a goat. And we had the privilege of experiencing that firsthand but not only seeing this goat led like a lamb to slaughter, we experienced that goat roast, roasted and served for lunch and for dinner and for campfire snack. In fact, there around that campfire, we had communion with water that Pastor Josiah had harvested and this goat meat that he had smoked, staples of the Messiah people, very much like Christ is staple for his people. And so we feast on Christ as a means of living. This morning we conclude this sermon series on worship, which is what we do as a gathered and then as a scattered people. We gather in Jesus' name and we scatter just the same. We gather to remember and rehearse God's story of rescue, and then we scatter as participants in that story as we go our separate ways. And when we gather, the image of God, the Imago Dei, is more beautifully and fully expressed because we're gathered together. In our scattering, the Missio Dei, the mission of God, is more fully emboldened and enlivened. And so, Lord God, in this gathering, 
move on your church and give us a greater revelation of who you are that shapes and forms who we are and how we live our lives. We are a people for whom worship is all of life. It is life in the spirit, and it is what makes us a peculiar people, countercultural to the world around us. Last week, we talked about the sacrament of baptism for all of us. It's the entrance into this faith of ours. This morning, we're talking about the sacrament of Holy Communion. And John Wesley, the founder of our Methodist movement, held that we should eat this meal, the sacrament of Holy Communion, as often as we can. If not every time we gather, as often as we can. And this is one of the differences between baptism and communion. We're baptized once. We take communion again and again and again. In the Methodist church, if you were baptized as an infant, that baptism took. If you joined this church from another denomination, your baptism took. If you were baptized as a Catholic, that baptism took. If you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and professed your faith in our triune God, or if someone did on your behalf as you were baptized, your baptism is good. There's no need to be baptized again. For infants, there comes an age of accountability. Commonly, that occurs at confirmation where they make a statement of their own faith and profess faith in Christ as their own, but sometimes that's awakened prior to confirmation. And so our children wake up and are enlivened in the faith. Whenever that awakening happens, if you're already baptized, that baptism took. And that's because baptism is not, it is not the act of salvation. It is the act of initiation. The act of salvation is Jesus' death on the cross, and we are saved by grace through faith. And when we're baptized, and we should be, it is that act of initiation, and we are baptized with an identity, given a new name, Christian. And that says so much more about what God has done for us than what we can do for God, as if that is even a thing. And there are ways in which we remember our baptism, like remembering your baptism every time those baptismal vows are taken and repeating them in your heart and reminding, uh, being reminded that you're a part of the Christian covenantal community and we live that faith out together. Baptism happens once, communion happens as often as you can. The sacrament of Holy Communion was instituted by the Lord Jesus himself at the Last Supper there in the upper room. And there are different thoughts with respect to what happens when these elements are consecrated. Some traditions say that the bread and the juice are literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ, and that's called transubstantiation. Other traditions say the bread and juice coexist with the body and blood of Christ. That's consubstantiation. Much like putting an iron in the fire, the iron remains iron, but it takes the properties of the heat and of the fire because it's in the fire. 
The iron and the heat are united. Other people say what happens here is memorial. It's something we do in remembrance of Christ, and that's it, period, end of story. And still others say, I can't figure it all out right now. But the sacrament is so much more than remembrance. Somehow, some way, the very real presence of Christ is present in the bread and in the juice. And bottom line, Communion is communion. And every time we take communion, we experience transformation individually and corporately. The scripture that Alex read earlier, it speaks to this transformation. And immediately after Jesus' words to his disciples, they say, this is a hard saying and that it was difficult to understand. And I can't imagine hearing these words for the very first time without any retrospect to filter them through. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. I think I'd be like, what? Eat your flesh, drink your blood, Jesus. But after chewing on these words for a while and seeing the one from whom they came, live out what's expected even of us, I'm sure these words would be such that we'd understand their meaning, never forgetting what Jesus said. My flesh is food. Indeed, my blood is drink. Indeed, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear and receive this message. In the text that Alex read, Jesus references flesh and blood four times. Flesh, the substance of this physical, earthly body. Blood, the very seat of human life. It's like Jesus is saying, this is serious. And it is. It's the difference between life and death, both now and for all eternity, that all of our actions, all of our affections, all of life be lived out unto Jesus. And he wants us to get it so much that he spells it out here for us first in John chapter 6 with contrasting statements. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have life within you. Verse 54, but those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have this life inside of them, eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. There are two different words used for eat in these verses. And one word is to eat something, a completed action. Once I've eaten it, I'm full and we're done and get up and leave the table. And the other is to gnaw or to crunch on or to chew on these words, a constant feeding that is continuous. And Jesus is stressing the slow and steady process, the habit of spiritually feeding upon Christ. So in other words... Unless you eat my flesh, period, you can't have eternal life within. And I, you cannot have eternal life within you. But if you gnaw on my flesh and crunch through life and chew on this word, then you will have eternal life. And I'll raise you up to the last day. He's making two points here that are one and the same. It starts with an initial eating. It is a continuous and ongoing 
feeding. Both are essential. I can remember so many family reunions, the Donaldson family reunion, where my uncle Kent and my dad, Sonny Donaldson, both big men, both who like to eat, would grab that chicken out of the bucket for the initial eating. And then they would eat that chicken leg. I mean, till there is no meat left on it, sucking all the life. I'm talking, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you eat like that yourself, <laughs> gnawing on that bone and sucking every part. That's how we have got to come to Christ. Yes, there's that initial eating, but we have got to gnaw, nibble, and chew on him every day, every time we gather. And this is why, second point, Jesus is defining eternal life for us with parallel statements. Verse 54, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I'll raise them up the last day. All who eat my flesh and drink my blood remain in me and I in them. Church, eternal life is something we possess right here, right now. Simply put, it is remaining in Christ and he in us, abiding with and in him. That point of connection to him, being. We're not human doings, we are human beings, being with Christ. And so let me ask, how's that going for you? that living with Christ. Because I think one thing Jesus is saying to us is if you don't have that, if you aren't practicing that right here, right now, how do you expect to experience it for all eternity? Leonard Ravenhill is a prolific preacher who lived in days gone by, and he said, this life is a dressing room for eternity. That's all it is. A dressing room for eternity. Dress rehearsal for the unseen real. And so we gnaw on Christ, drinking him in. These are continuous actions of remaining. His flesh is the bread we eat. His blood, the drink that we drink. We spend our lives looking for true bread, true drink, looking for truth. And we kid ourselves by embracing what we think is right and noble and true. And we fool ourselves by dying for the wrong things. But Christ is truth. He's all there is. And Jesus Christ alone is enough. He is what we need for survival. He is what we need for survival. Now I've lost my page. <laughs> As the food that we eat and drink that we drink is critical for living, Jesus is all there is. And it's not just feast or famine. It's eat or die. Because if we aren't eating, we will die. Our relationship with Jesus is or it isn't. And by nature of that relationship, you either are Alive or you're not. Third point, Jesus' commission to his church is this, verse 57. I live by the power of the living Father who sent me, and in the same way, those who partake of me, those who gnaw, nibble, crunch, and chew on me, in the same way, those who partake of me will live because of me. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that my purpose is rooted solely in the living Father, so too should your purpose be rooted solely in me. Church, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of it all? It's to worship Christ in all of life, because worship is 
life and living it in the spirit right on up to the hilt. In the same way that Jesus Christ was sent by God, so too are we sent by Christ. As Jesus came to spread the good news, to heal the sick, to perform miracles, to usher in the kingdom of God, so too are we commissioned with that same task. And that is good news, this ongoing unfolding of participation in God's salvation history. It is not a one-time exchange as if we were consumers. It is a lifelong journey and process on into eternity, made possible by the very real presence of Jesus Christ, who is with us, and even better, he is in us. So let me get practical for just a moment. Since all things have been given for us richly to enjoy, whether it's art or whether it's exercise or activity or rest or food or drink. Those are things that we are grateful for all day, every day, and they stir our affections for God and ought to draw us into worship with hearts that are grateful for all that God has done. Moreover, everything we give ourselves to is an act of worship, which means the yoga instructor is participating with God in leading worship, drawing others into his presence. Or the general contractor is doing the same, participating with God in creation and in worship, providing for other people to experience the same. Or the bank investor or the teacher or the student. All things we give ourselves to are ways in which we worship and how we conduct and carry ourselves and do those things, draw other people in just the same. We live our lives by the power of the living Father who sent Jesus Christ and in the same way that he was sent, so too are we. We partake of the living Christ because that's what it means to really live to feast on him and to enjoy him in the living of all our days. And that's why worship is so important. That's why this table is so important because when we gather in Jesus' name, his presence is made real to us, for us in a very concrete and tangible way. Faith comes by hearing. It does. It is sustained by receiving the word again and again and again, gnawing and nibbling and chewing and remaining in and with Christ. And so I want to challenge your way of thinking. Receiving this word is one thing, but feasting on it every day and every week as we gather, that is everything. This faith of ours is not about individual consumerism. It is about corporate consumption. And the rhythm of the living of our daily lives involves a weekly in-person gathering wherein we feast on this word made flesh weekly. And if it's not enough that we come to this table once a month, wouldn't it be great if we could come to this table every time we gather, because it's not about me and it's not about you. It is all about the Lord, what he has done and what he is doing and what he's inviting us into participating in this rescue story that is being written, unfolding even as we breathe and speak and eat and live and have our way right here, right now. And so we gather weekly 
to chew on his word and suck the marrow out of his life for the scattering. And now let me encourage you because you don't have to have all of this figured out. Well, is it transubstantiation? Is it consubstantiation? Is it just memorialized? You don't have to have it all figured out. The presence of Christ, what happens when we gather, what we scatter. I don't understand how electricity works. I'm not going to sit in the dark until I do. I'm thankful for those who do, and I'm going to experience the benefits of it. John Wesley held the sacrament of Holy Communion was a converting ordinance. Don't think you have to have all of this figured out before you come to this table. That's why we have an open table. That's why we invite children to this table. That's why we invite people who are not members to this table. That's even why we allow sinners who have never professed faith in Christ come to this table because in that moment, the light may come on and salvation may invade every part of who we are. That's the goal for each and every one of us, to experience transformation. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to come to this, the Lord's table, because Jesus Christ did this for you as an ongoing and continuous means of grace, practical, concrete, tangible way of feeding on Christ, eating him, drinking him in, identifying with him in his death and in his resurrection. And as we come, it is a means of response And it's a way of saying, Lord Jesus, I want more of you. God, give us more of you.